Right, if you didn't make it there already, make sure your Bible's open. If you brought one, to the book of 1 John, chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible with you, that is okay. We will be projecting most of what I'll be reading. And the only other thing I would say as I, I get started here is just to pass on a, a bit of a warning slash rebuke that I felt like the Lord gave me this week as I was preparing. I, I read this passage, maybe you heard Jody read it this morning, and, and I thought to myself, oh no. Oh no. Everything in here Chris and Josh have already said. He's just repeating himself over and over and over again. This is the repeat passage. Why did Chris get the new content passage? And I have to come up with something new to say out of the same content. And then I've heard the Lord, I believe, (laughs) remind me, Matthew, if I repeat myself, you should too. You learn by reputation. Praise God, Julie. And so I just, I want to pass that on to you, church, in case there's ever a Sunday, maybe this happened today, where you hear God's word read and you think, I know that. I've heard that. If God saw fit to repeat himself, then we need it. Okay? May may this not be a church where novelty is worshipped and newness is craved. That's called gathering around what our tickling ears want to hear. Okay? If God's going to repeat himself today, then I'm going to repeat myself. We better be ready for that. We better have open, faith-filled hearts that are eager to receive what he wants to say. Okay? Lord, would you do that today? Help me now as I preach your word. Pray that we would think your thoughts after you and that where you do repeat yourself, we would stop and notice and humble ourselves and be willing to think again. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. I want to remind you, church, of the title of this sermon series. It's called Assured of Salvation. And that title comes from 1 John 5.13. 5.13, where John declares, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. I want you to notice an implicit assumption in those words. John assumes that it's possible to believe in the name of the Son of God, And yet struggle to know, do I have eternal life? Struggle to know that God is for me and not against me. Struggle to know if I die, will I be welcomed into heaven? It's possible to believe in the name of the Son of God and yet have all those struggles. And so God is very kind to meet us in the midst of that struggle with the gift of his word. and Especially his words in 1 John where he helps us grow in our assurance of salvation, so that the year by year, day by day, we are more confident, not less confident, that we're on the road to eternal glory. And by the way, in case you haven't caught this already in 1 John, this isn't a book just for people who are struggling to know, am I a Christian or am I not? You've been a Christian a long time. I think it's really tempting to come to 1 John and think, oh, great, this will be really helpful for the people sitting around me. Don't do that. 
Because assurance of salvation isn't a bridge that we cross at some point in our life and never look back. Assurance of salvation, confidence in all that that God is for us in Jesus. And and faith that because of Jesus, suffering won't have the final word. Eternal life will have the final word. That confidence, that faith, we we all need to be growing in that every day of our life. I, I want to be a man who is more confident, more faith filled, more content in the gift of eternal life that God has given me in the gospel this week than I was last week. And I don't think I'm alone. So so when you hear assurance of salvation, we title this sermon series being assured of salvation. Don't think a toll booth I have to get through and and Williams is going to give me the right coins to throw in, okay? No, think a lifelong fight to trust Jesus more and us less. So last Sunday, Chris preached from verses 7 to 12 where he argued that that God-honoring love requires Christ-exalting faith. And this morning, the end of chapter 4, beginning in verse 13, John keeps focusing on this topic of love. And I believe that the main point of this section is actually found in the second half of verse 16. So John looks back on verses 13 to 15. He looks forward to verses 17 to 21. And at the end of 16, he says this. He summarizes the whole this way. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God. And God abides in him. So to simplify that a little bit, I'd simply say that those who abide in God abide in love. That's the big idea. That those who enjoy personal communion with the the God of the universe are those who are confident in God's love for them. They're characterized by love for God and and they're overflowing in love for the people around them, especially the members of their church. Those who abide in God, abide in love. Those who abide in God, abide in love. And that statement, though simple on the surface, forces us to ask and answer two big questions. That's what I want to do this morning. Okay, Question one, what does abiding in God mean? look like? Just so easy for that to be one of those kind of religious phrases. I I guess that's a good thing. What does it actually look like? What does abiding in God look like? Question two, what does abiding in love look like? If those who abide in God abide in love, then we'd better understand what does abiding in God look like and what does abiding in love look like so that we can see how abiding in God enables us to abide in love. Does that make sense? We have to answer those questions, okay? So that's the structure of this sermon. Let's begin with the first big question. What does abiding in God look like? Look at verse 13. Verse 13. Notice how John begins here. By this we know, you can feel a definition coming, that we abide in him and he in us. He repeats that phrase two more times. Verses 15 Verse 16, which is John's way of reminding us, like I was saying earlier, if I repeat myself, this abiding thing is pretty important. So think for just a minute about the audacity of what John's saying. When time after time he says, we abide in him, he abides in us. We abide in him, he abides in us. Just, Just think about the audacity of what he's saying. He's saying that it's possible to experience 
intimate, personal communion with God. That is so real and so close that God is dwelling in you and you are dwelling in God. Think about that. You know, so often we, we think of God as, as someone who is apart from us and outside of us. And both of those things are gloriously true. God is not the world. That's pantheism. Okay, nor is God in the world and the world in God in the sense that his being is bound up with, with our being. That's panentheism. How do we know that's not the nature of reality? How do we know that God is apart from us and outside of us? Well, we know that because the biblical doctrine of creation tells us that before we existed, God existed. His, his existence doesn't require our existence. Nor is his glory derived from our own. He is absolutely independent and eternally self-sufficient. And that's an exceedingly good thing for you and me. Exodus 3, verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What's his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Do you realize, friend, that there will never be a moment in your life where you can say, when you show up at someone's house, I am is here. You can never say that. You'll never be able to say that. I mean, you can try, but you ought to be laughed at. Why? Because we're creatures. We're creatures. We're not absolute. We're, we're contingent. We're dependent. If, if the world and all that in it, all that's in it, suddenly ceased to exist, God would still be there. If for one moment, God ceased to exist, then you would too. Colossians 1.16, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. If he ceased to exist, you would too. We need to approach this whole understanding of what it means to abide in God. What does abiding in God look like? By remembering that, that all right thoughts with, about God start with the reality that he exists apart from us and outside of us. And yet, this is the God who promised Israel. In Leviticus 26, verse 11, I will make my dwelling among you, and my soul shall not abhor you, and I will walk among you, and will be your God. 
and you shall be my people. And then the same God says this in, in Revelation 21.3. I'm moving all history toward this day when this comes to pass. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. I mean, that's, that's staggering, friends. That's staggering. Do, do not take the privilege of personal communion with God for granted. Or, or grow so familiar with those words, abiding in God, he abides in us, that we lose our sense of awe. That a relationship like that with God is actually possible. That's audacious. That's audacious. And, and to whatever degree that kind of relationship, abiding in God, God abiding in you, it's like, well, duh, of course. Then one of two things has happened in your mind. Very simple. Either you have made God smaller than he is in your own mind, or in your own mind, you have made yourself far greater than you actually are. If the fact that, that we could abide in God and God could abide in us, personal communion with the Lord of the universe, isn't amazing to you that either God has grown way too small in your mind or you have grown way too big in your mind. And when John speaks about this abiding, he's describing the joy of personal communion with God. That's what we need to see here. That, that's amazing. So, so what does it look like? Okay, three things, three answers here. What's abiding in God look like? It's amazing. What's it look like? First, it's a gift of the Spirit. Look back at verse 13. Verse 13. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us because we feel his nearness when the house is quiet and soft music is playing in the background and we pick up a steaming cup of our favorite coffee. Because when the band is tight and my favorite lyrics are on the screen, and everyone's hands are in the air, it's like a tidal wave ushering me into the presence of God. Because that one time when I was standing at the beach, looking out over the waves, I just knew, I don't know how, but I just knew that God was real, and he was with me. All of those experiences, rightly, understood, are gifts from God. They are. Not denigrating them. Rightly understood. But friends, none of those things are why we know that we abide in him and he in us, as good as they are. Because they can come and go. Well, what does John actually say here? We know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. So think of it this way. Personal communion with God is first and foremost a gift of the spirit. John 14 verse 16. Jesus says, I will ask the father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him. Why do you know him? For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. That's a promise Jesus fulfilled in Acts 2, right? At the day of Pentecost when, when the Holy Spirit was poured out on the people of God in a way that saints of old could only imagine. And before that day, before 
Pentecost, the temple was a physical place, a physical building, a one building where God chose to make his presence known. But, but what happened when God the Son ascended to heaven and God the Father and God the Son together poured out the gift of God the Spirit? One of the most amazing things that happened is the location of the temple changed. The location of the temple changed. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. Why is abiding in God a gift of the Spirit? Because we only enjoy personal communion with God when his Holy Spirit takes up residence inside our bodies, inside of our hearts. We become a temple of the, the Spirit. And what exactly does the Spirit do? Think about this. He, he does all kinds of things, but, but one of the most important things he does is he assures us that God is with us. He reminds us that, that we're not orphans, we're not aliens, we're not alone. Where, wherever we go, the Holy Spirit goes. And it's because of the nearness of the Spirit of God that we know that God abides in us and we abide in God. But, I warn you, that's not the case for every person. Okay, abiding in God, God abiding in us, it's a gift of the Spirit, but it's also, second answer here, it's the reward of faith. Okay, it's a gift of the Spirit, but second, it's a reward of faith. So look at verses 14 and 15. John, John tells us here the single most important way the Spirit confirms that he's on the scene. How do, how do we know this? And we have seen and testify. Okay, this is what goes down when the Holy Spirit is present. We have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So think about that. All kinds of people in your community, physically, online, claim to be spiritual. Okay, I've had conversations with a lot of different people. They didn't necessarily believe in Jesus, but, but they claimed to be spiritual. But what John's telling us here is that there's only one kind of spiritual person who can truthfully claim to be filled with the Spirit of God. And that's the person who believes the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the only person who can say that with any integrity. Where, where Christ is confessed, not, not merely as a historical person, but, but as the fully divine Son of God. The Spirit's present. Where Christ is not confessed. Okay, where, where an individual or a church refuses to recognize and submit to the words of Jesus and thereby the authority of Jesus. This we know. The Spirit is not present. Why not? Because the supreme mission of the Spirit is to draw our attention to the supreme worth of the Son. That's his mission number one. And that's really important. It's really important that Jesus says of the Spirit in John 16, 14, He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Why is that so important, Matthew? Why, is it, why are you making such a big deal about the fact that the Holy Spirit has to draw attention to Jesus? Well, the reason, friend, is that apart from that happening, there can be no personal communion with God. Because there can be no personal communion with God, no abiding in God, us abiding in him, apart from faith in Christ. If, if you want to abide in God, 
and know that God abides in you through the gift of the Spirit, then, then you have to turn from your sins and lean the weight of your life on Jesus Christ to make you right with God and satisfy your soul. Okay, that, that's what the Bible means when it, when it talks about faith. Abiding in God isn't just a gift of the Spirit. It's, it's the reward of faith. And that saving faith isn't just some kind of generic religious belief. It's often used that way. But that's not saving faith. Saving faith is a personal, wholehearted, life-defining trust in Jesus to make us right with God. That's what saving faith is. Okay, but, but please notice this, okay, and this is so important. Saving faith, faith in Christ, this personal communion with God that's the reward of faith, that faith isn't ultimately about ascribing significance to or acknowledging the importance of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. We, as if it's just some sort of mental assent. I mentally assent, I mentally acknowledge that he was a real person and he did some great things. End of story. That's not saving faith. Saving faith is it's fueled by the mind, but it's ultimately a glad and joyful expression of the heart. Why do I say that? Why do I say that? Because in the gospel, we're confronted with a lot more than a data point about the saving activity of God. Hello, Christian. Please add the following information to spreadsheet cell four. Jesus Christ lived, died, and rose from the grave for you. Okay, God, thank you. Got it. No, it's not saving faith. Okay, we're not just confronted in the gospel with a data point about God. We are overwhelmed by the immeasurable love of God. Look at verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. In other words, to confess Christ is to come to know and believe the love that God has for us. So think about that. Christ crucified makes a loud statement that we are sinners and need a Savior. Right? Christ crucified makes a loud statement that God is holy and his justice will prevail. But Christ crucified also makes a loud statement about something else. Something that we are tempted to forget or outright deny when we are suffering. And here's the statement. God loves you. God loves you. He really loves you, friend. Now, now he doesn't love us in the way that we often want him to. He's, he's not a smitten boyfriend <laughs> that'll just do whatever you want simply because you want it. He brings things to pass in our lives that are expressions of his love that are tremendously painful. Things, things that we look at and think, if, if I genuinely love that person, there's no way I would ever let that happen to them. But his ways are not our ways. <laughs> They're greater than our ways. And so is his love. And because his ways are greater than our ways and his love is greater than our love, time after time, God works things together for good in ways that we never could. Okay? And in your darkest hour, 
in your most desperate moment, when, when you find yourself screaming with the psalmist, how long, O oh Lord, will you hide your face forever? Know this, friend. The cross of Jesus Christ stands as an eternal, unchanging, and immovable testimony to the greatness, faithfulness, and surety of God's love for you. Know that. Even when you're screaming out, how long, oh Lord? How long? In that moment, the cross of Christ stands. It's like Everest. This immovable, unchanging testimony. God loves you. There are things about his love that are most mysterious to me. But with the mystery, friend, we can never say that God's love is hidden, uncertain, or merely awaited. It's revealed and experienced in the death Christ died for you and me. Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us. It's shown. And that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, so we have this external testimony of the gospel and the internal testimony of the Spirit working together to persuade us that God loves you. <laughs> and that he's working things for good in your life and you can trust him. So, so this faith in Christ and the abiding in God and God abiding in us, that's the reward of faith. It's, it's not just a mental acknowledgement. It is, verse 16, coming to know and believe, trust, the love that God has for you. And that requires turning away, by the way, from all the lesser false loves in this world that will never satisfy your soul. Okay, abiding in God is a gift of the Spirit. It's a reward of a faith, which is a confidence in God's personal love for us. And lastly, abiding in God, it's a call to love. It's a call to love. It's sort of gift of the Spirit, reward of faith. It's, it's a call to love. Back at verse 16, God is love. Whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. God is love. Whoever abides in love, that's the call, abides in God. Another way of saying that would simply be we, we inevitably become like the company we keep. Right? So Proverbs 20, or 13, 20 rather, Solomon observes, whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. That, that's always true in our relationships with one another. And the same thing's true in our relationship with, with God. Okay? If, if through faith in Christ, the gift of the Holy Spirit, you're abiding in God and God's abiding in you, then guess what's going to happen? you're inevitably going to look like God. You're going to become like him. And, and since God is love, he, he defines and embodies what, what true love thinks and feels and, and does. Anyone who enjoys personal communion with him, who's abiding with him, is ultimately going to walk in love too. And that love has two directions. It's it's love for the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And it's love for our neighbor as ourselves. So what does it look like to abide in God? Well, it means to enjoy a personal communion with him that is a gift of the Spirit, a reward of faith, and a call to love. And this call is so important that it's like John, it's like a hyperlink. John double-clicks on it. And verses 17 to 21 
we're going to briefly look at our second question here. It's all about answering what does this genuine love look like? What does abiding in love look like? Okay, so let's think about this second question. What does abiding in love look like? I have two answers here. I think John gives us at least two. And the first is this. What does abiding in love look like? Well, genuine love, the kind that comes to pass in our life when we are abiding in God, God's abiding in us, it's confident, not fearful. Genuine love is confident, not fearful. So so pay careful attention here to the connection between verse 16 and verse 17. Okay, look at the end of verse 16. When God abides in us, when you come to Christ, he fills you with his spirit. What happens as a result? End of 16, God abides in him, beginning of 17. By this, what's the this? By God abiding in him, his love is perfected with us or with respect to us. Question, who's doing the perfecting? What's well, not you and me? It's passive. Look back at 17. By this is love, our love, perfected. Our love is perfected. Somebody else, something, someone outside of yourself is in the business of perfecting your love. God's doing it. And this is amazing. Okay? It's amazing enough that God would demonstrate his love to you. Given who he is, right? Who we are. That's amazing. But you know what's just as amazing and kind of blows your mind is that having demonstrated his love to us, God would then say, okay, you know what? I'm not going to stop there. I'm going to keep working to make your love like my love. I'm going to show you my love and then I'm going to perfect your love. He, he never just says to you, Christian, okay, here's the deal. Are we all agreed I've loved you? Not had. <laughs> all right. Well, if we're all agreed on that, you better go start loving other people, okay? And I suggest you begin with your wife and kids. Come back when you got that figured out. He, no, God doesn't do that. What does he do? What does he do? Well, he faithfully works to perfect your love through easy relationships and hard relationships alike. So think about this. Okay, there's, there's a supernatural activity here where God enables us to, to love him, even when our bodies are falling apart, we're wrestling with his goodness, or love other people, even when they're being enemies seeking to harm us, he enables us to love in both those directions. Spirit perfects our love, our love for God, our love for neighbor. And as he does that, God strengthens our assurance that we're his kids. Okay, this, is, this is how love is confident, not fearful. So follow me here. When we experience God perfecting our love for him and for other people, we grow in our assurance of two things. One, God is at work in my life, doing things that would never happen apart from him. I, I could never love him the way I do, given all the suffering I'm in right now, unless God was perfecting my love for him. I could never love my spouse the way I do, 
unless God was perfecting my love for them given all the things they've said and done, okay? We, we recognize God's doing things in us that we could never do apart from him. And the second reason it strengthens our assurance that we're God's kids, and we can be confident of that, is that we recognize we're experiencing the very same thing that Jesus did. So what, what does Hebrews 5.8 say? Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. Church, do you realize that includes the obedience of love? Okay, so, so the parallels, this is where I'm picking up on what John says in verse 17, because as he is, so also are we in the world. Okay, the parallels between Jesus' experience in this world and, and our experience in this world. What's the parallel, John? Well, the parallel is that as with Jesus, so with us, the Holy Spirit must teach us how to love. Jesus, in his human nature, learned the obedience of love through what he suffered. When we recognize that, that, that we're experiencing in some ways the very same things that Jesus did, we grow in our confidence that Jesus' story is our story. And that on the day of judgment, we too will be welcomed by the Father because our older brother was welcomed by the Father. And as Hebrews 6 says, he's gone ahead as a forerunner on our behalf. That, that is how, looking at verse 17, the fact that as he is, so also are we in this world, gives us confidence for the day of judgment. It reminds us that the end of Jesus' story will be the end of our story. Now, I think the single most important way, and John points this out here, that the Spirit perfects our love, our love for God, our love for other people, is by delivering us from fear. Delivering us from fear. So by way of application, I just want to camp out for a minute on very practical terms. What does it mean that God perfects our love by enabling our love for Him and other people to be confident, not fearful. When, when John says in verse 18, there is no fear in love, what is he talking about? We could give a whole sermon on this, but, but in brief, he's not speaking of the awe-filled respect for the Lord that we're commanded to have for God all over the Bible. Okay, so when he says there is no fear in love, just focus on our love for God for a minute here, he's not saying that you know, everything that was said in Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, that was kind of off in Old Testament. And now it's all about love. There's no fear in love. Well, no, that's not the fear he's, he's speaking of, okay? John's speaking of a fear of punishment. Okay, a paralyzing anxiety of, of impending condemnation. That's the kind of fear that's incompatible with genuine love in our relationship with God. And it's that fear, friend, that fear of, of punishment, of divine judgment, that Jesus cast out of our hearts when John says perfect love, cast out fear. That's what Jesus cast out through the power of the gospel. And he does that for you, Christian, in two very specific ways, okay? First, he proves the immeasurable depth of God's love for you by laying down his life for you. It's the first way he cast out that fear of God's punishment, of God's condemnation from your heart. He confronts you with the depth of God's love by laying it on his life. And second, he guarantees the unchanging character of God's love by forgiving all your sins and giving you his righteousness. So Jesus proves God's love and Jesus guarantees God's love. And in so doing, his perfect love for us casts 
out, throws out all fear of judgment and condemnation in the courtroom of heaven. So here's what that means. God cannot love you any more than he does right now. And God will not love you any less than he does right now. That's crazy. (laughs) And so not like us. His, His love for you, if you're in Christ, it's perfect. That's why it cast out fear. It's confident, not fearful. It's because his love for you is, is perfect. It's perfect in its depth, perfect in its endurance. It, it doesn't ebb and flow on the tide of your imperfection. So think of it this way. Your love for God is what? Is being perfected. All right? God's love for you, what is it? It's already perfect. And it's because of its very perfection that it is able to perfect your own love. We, we are incapable of perfecting our own love for God. We, we cannot cast out our own fear of condemnation. But Jesus Christ can, and he does, by proving and guaranteeing the love of, of God for us. Genuine love for God is confident, it's not fearful, because it beholds and believes the perfection of the Father's love for us. But remember I said that it's confident, not fearful, Not just in our relationship with God, our love for God, but in our love for one another. What do I mean by that? How does the perfect love of God cast out fear in our love for each other? Think very carefully here, friend. When we come to know and believe God's love for us, we don't have to be afraid of him. We fear him, but we don't have to be afraid of him. Something happens. We become less shaken when other people fail to love us in the way they should. And we're free to love them even if they never receive our words and actions as love and never reciprocate our affection. How does that happen? It's very simple. As our confidence in God's love and acceptance grows, we are less tempted to look to other people for what ultimately only the Lord can provide. We're less tempted to do that. And it's not as though their love, other people's love or lack thereof, becomes unimportant. We simply learn to see the Lord's love for us as far more important. That's powerful, okay? Only those who are confident in the love of a faithful God can persevere in loving unfaithful people without fear. Not because we... We've somehow found a way to figure out what other people are going to know or say in response to us in advance. We sort of steal ourselves. I'm going to love you, but I know I'm going to get smacked, but I know I'm going to get smacked, so I'm ready for it. Okay? No. No, that's, that's not how God's love casts out fear and our love for other people. Okay, God's perfect love casts out our fear in loving other people because this we know. No matter what they do back to us or in response to us, this is what God has always done for us and will always say over us. 
son, daughter, I love you. I love you right now when that person is saying that to you or doing that to you. And as his love becomes more precious to us than anything that this world can give or take away, we're freed to love other people regardless of how they're treating us. That's powerful. That's, that's God's perfect love casting out fear. Not just fear in our relationship with God, but fear in our relationships with other people. Genuine love is confident, not fearful. I'll end with this. Genuine love is also visible, not hidden. Okay? It's confident, not fearful. It's also visible, not hidden. To, to summarize verses 20 through 21... I'd simply say this, you cannot claim to love God if you refuse to love those who bear his image. That's the point. Every person around you, this includes those in the church, John's focusing on the brothers and sisters here, but it isn't limited to them. Every person around you, you're going to see this week, whether you like them or not, whether they're nice to you or not, they bear the image of God always do. And we cannot claim to love God if at the same time we refuse to love those who bear his image. That's the point here. Okay, What is visible, our love or lack thereof for other people, necessarily confirms the presence or absence of what is invisible, our, our love for God. Okay, So what do we need to remember here about this love that is visible, not hidden? Several things. We need to remember that, that every weakness or deficiency in our love for other people ultimately reflects a weakness or deficiency in our love for God. And that may sound discouraging, but, but actually, it can be good news. Why do I say that? It can be good news because it means that, that the key to growing in genuine love for other people so that our love for God is visible, the key is not somehow staring at them long enough and cataloging all the ways they bear God's image until suddenly they loom lovely in your mind. You know, I thought they were a jerk, but the more I stare at them awkwardly while I'm sipping coffee, they look lovely. <laughs> no, okay? They bear his image, so we should love them. But, but that's not how our, our love for other people becomes increasingly visible, Okay? God doesn't do that. But if he opens your eyes to see his work in them, praise be to God. Okay, we, we don't grow in our love for other people primarily by growing in all the lovely things that we see about them. We grow in our love for other people because we increasingly are amazed at the loveliness of Christ. And as we see his love in all its perfection, proved and secured for us, then we are overwhelmed at how he has loved us when we were completely unlovely. And we're freed from loving other people based on how lovely they look by a God who says to us when we are most unlovely, I love you. And that experience, friend, that, that personal testimony in our relationship with God, that will free you from bitterness and resentment in your relationships with other people. 
Because the love of God will humble you. It will remind you that God has not treated us as we deserve. He's given you the opposite, which means that the defining reality in your life, Christian, is not that you deserve love from other people and have failed to get it. Okay? The defining reality in your life is that when you deserve nothing but judgment from God, he chose to pour out his love on you. That's the defining reality in your life. Your sin against him is far greater than their sin against you. In the face of your sin, when he had every right to reject you, he loved you. He poured out his love into your heart through the Holy Spirit. And he'll perfect your love. He'll do it by reminding you of the perfection of his love for you in Christ and helping us to see that. I love the words of the old hymn, My Song is Love Unknown. The first stanza reads as follows. My song is love unknown, the Savior's love for me. Love to the loveless shown, that they might lovely be. That's what God wants to do in us, church. He wants to show us his love when we are loveless, that he might make us lovely. Those, those who abide in God, they abide in love. And as we grow in our personal communion with God, he'll perfect our love for him and for other people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much that we can say with John in verse 19, we love because you first loved us. Lord, that really is the banner over this entire passage. Thank you for granting us the gift of relationship with you by loving us. And I pray, Lord, that this week we would look to that love toward your love that you have poured in our hearts for the power we need to love you and love the people around us. Jesus, I pray that, that our love as a church would be confident, not fearful, visible, not hidden, and that we would be known in this community as men and women who love, not because we've been loved by other people and are just trying to repay them back, but because you first loved us. I pray that we'd be more amazed by that fact and that, that would change our love this week. Do that as we sing this final song in Jesus' name. Amen.